Okay. okay, can you hear me? Good? Okay. Um, welcome to the Canberra and District Historical Society's 2018 Canberra Day Oration. Um, I'd like to make a special welcome to Angus Campbell, Chief of Army. Thank you very much for coming along. And also to a member of the Legislative Assembly, Alistair Coe, who's um, earned himself frequent flyer points for this event. Well done. Uh, my name's Nick Swain. I'm the president of the Canberra District Historical Society. And our society is very grateful to the National Library of Australia for providing such a wonderful venue for this oration in a building that's now celebrating its 50th year. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. I pay my respects for their elders past, present and emerging. Our society very much appreciates their long and continuing contribution to the area's history and custodianship. The subject of today's oration is the return of the unknown Australian soldier. We share with our nation's first people a strong need to return the remains of our dead to country, to bring them home. As many of you know, today is the 105th anniversary of the naming of Canberra on the 12th of March, 1913. This year, the Canberra Day public holiday is actually on the 12th of March, <laughs> the day we always hold the oration. Yes. <laughs> the Society has commemorated Canberra Day since its formation in 1953. And since 2002, we've invited prominent Canberra residents to reflect on aspects of Canberra's past, to comment on the present and to contemplate the future. That is what the Canberra Day oration is about. Um, a quick thing about the format of this uh, thing today. Um, when I finish going on, I'll ask Brendan to talk, <laughs> to give you the main course. Um, then there will be questions. The questions will be, um, I'd say, controlled, is the right word, <laughs> by Esther Davies, our Vice President, who will also give her a vote of thanks at the end. Thank you very much. Uh, we need to finish around about one o'clock. Anyway, um, it now gives me great pleasure to tell you a little bit about our 2018 Canberra Day orator, Brendan Kelson, who's standing quietly behind me. <laughs> Um, Brendan describes himself as truly an old Canberran. Comfortable in his 80s, his working life has been almost entirely spent in public service in the national capital. Arriving in Canberra on Labor Day in 1959, he joined the Public Service Board's Colombo Plan team. He was with the Prime Minister's Department from 1965 to 1977 and then went on to establish the Australian National Gallery. No mean task. Um, his long association with the War Memorial began in 1981 and culminated in his appointment as the Memorial's Director in 1990, a post he held until retiring at the end of 1994. It was in this role that he led the renewal of the Australian War Memorial and the return of the unknown Australian soldier. Along the way, Brendan had leadership roles in a number of other important cultural programs and institutions. Retirement has seen him active on a number of fronts, photography, genealogy tours, jazz festivals, producing Kelly Country with a colleague and writing several publications. So now it's time for me to hand you over to Brendan who will talk about bringing the unknown Australia back home. Brendan, welcome.
Let's see if I get this right. Can you catch me up at the back there clearly? Right, thank you. Let me acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today and offer my respects to their elders, past and present. This is the last year of the centenary of ANZAC 2014-2018 and today it's the story of the unknown Australian soldier and some reflections on the centenary and ANZAC. The Great War accounted for around 10 million military dead. That bare statistic numbs the fact that each one of that number was a human tragedy, perhaps a father, a husband or son likely leaving an orphan child, window or grieving widow, widow or grieving parents. Worse still if they were lost without trace or their remains could not be identified. For the families of such men, a tomb of an unknown soldier came to be a symbolic grave for those lost. For Australia and members of the British Empire, it was the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. For God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire. This was an imperial burial. The soldier might have fought in any of the British forces and he lay at the heart of the empire to which so many held deep attachment. The story of the empire's unknown warrior began with the Battle of the Somme, Western Front, 1916. Church of England chaplain, the Reverend David Railton, found in a back garden at Armentier a grave with a rough wooden cross bearing in pencil the words, an unknown British soldier. It caused him to think, what can I do to ease the pain for father, mother, family and friend? Then clear and strong, he wrote, let this body, this symbol of him, be carried reverently over the sea to his native land. David Railton took his idea to the Dean of Westminster Abbey and at 11 o'clock on the morning of the second anniversary of the 1918 armistice, an unknown British soldier from the Western Front was buried in the Abbey's Western Nave. France at the same time was burying its own unknown poilu under the Arc de Triomphe. And the United States would follow a year later with a burial of its own unknown in Arlington National Cemetery, Virginia. In Australia, prominent figures, including the Minister for Defence, George Pearce, were attracted to the idea of bringing home one of our own and incorporating his tomb in the planned War Memorial Museum in Canberra. John Trelaw, director of the Memorial Museum, had a different view. In an address to the New South Wales Congress of the Returned Sailors, Soldiers, Imperial League of Australia, now the RSL, in November 1921, he declared his opposition to the return of an unknown Australian soldier reminding his fellows that the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey represented all the empire dead. If we were to bury one of our own men in our own country, he said, it would take away the beautiful idea of the burial of unknown origin. Trelaw believed that the federal treasury might look on the tomb of an unknown soldier, not as part of the Memorial Museum official historian Charles Bean and he were dedicated to, but as a cheaper option. The Australian War Memorial Act was passed in 1925 to establish a War Memorial Museum in the national capital. 
In his second reading speech on the bill, Senator Pierce said the building would have a hall of memory bearing the names of all Australians who had died in the war. Standing in that silent hall, surrounded by the names of those who fell, he said, visitors may be impressed with the sense that they are standing in the actual presence of the dead. But when the memorial opened on Armistice Day 1941, Australia was engaged in a second conflict shaping to be worse than the first, and this was not to be. The names of the war dead would instead be inscribed on bronze plaques lining the walls of the memorial's cloisters. The central sacred purpose of the hall had gone, and what function it might now serve was not at all clear. In due course, Napier Waller, a muralist who lost his painting arm at Bullecourt, was commissioned to design stained glass windows and intricate mosaic designs, figures and tiling for the dome and walls of the hall. And sculptor and World War I veteran Leslie Bowles produced a stylish and sensitive plaster model design for the apse. But this was rejected by the Minister of the Day, Sir Wilfred Kent Hughes. It was replaced by a respected World War II official war artist, Ray Ewer's monumental warrior bronze, the Australian serviceman. The hall otherwise remained empty. The idea of repatriating the remains of an unknown Australian soldier had not been forgotten. It came at the end of World War II, and again in 1991 during the memorial's 50th anniversary. In 1992, an informal approach was made to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, the body responsible for Commonwealth War Graves worldwide. The Commission's response was friendly, but predictable. The tomb in Westminster Abbey stood for all war dead of the Commonwealth. But times had changed, and there was an Australian case for action in 1993. We were approaching the 75th anniversary of the armistice, the last significant occasion when veterans of World War I might gather with those from World War II, Korea, Vietnam and other encounters. The federal government was ramping up commemorative activity and Prime Minister Bob Hawke had not long before taken veterans back to Gallipoli for the 75th anniversary of the landing. The Commission's response, while disappointing, hadn't closed the door. The Minister for Veterans Affairs was sympathetic uh, but guarded. We decided to go ahead. The Australian Defence Force promised support, and we had the backing of the RSL, and the League's president had cleared the way with its UK counterpart, the influential Royal British Legion. I was in touch with Dick Smith, our London High Commissioner, a member of the Commission, and he believed the Commission could be encouraged to change its mind. In Paris, Ambassador Kim Hughes and our Defence Attaché Royal Australian Navy Captain Michael Carroll were confident we would have no difficulty with the French if, as they suspected, we were to look for an unknown soldier from the Western Front. We were going through the ceremonial and funeral issues that needed to be addressed when it came upon us that we had no undertaker. As it happened, Rob Allison, World War II veteran, one of Melbourne's most respected undertakers, and the man responsible for the state funeral of Sir Robert Menzies learned of our situation, offered his services, and of course, we gratefully accepted. 
The ABC said it would be happy to provide all television services, but at standard commercial rates. The broadcaster did not consider the occasion to be one of national importance, entitling us to free services. I was talking with the Prime Minister at this time, and we, were, and we raised this in one of our briefings. The, Prime, the ABC quickly decided that this, that this was an occasion of national importance. <laughs> there were no difficulties with Qantas. It would be the official carrier, and a Boeing 747 on the Paris route was redesignated the spirit of remembrance for our purposes. In March 1993, the Commission approved the exhumation and return of an Australian, of an unknown soldier for entombment in the Australian War Memorial's Hall of Memory. Thanks to the efforts of Dick Smith, with the support of his Canadian, South African, Indian and New Zealand colleagues on the Commission. As to where an unknown soldier might come from, there was little, little debate. It had to be the Western Front. It was there that five divisions of the AIF had fought their longest and hardest battles and suffered Australia's heaviest losses of the war, more than 46,000 dead. Things were underway in London and Paris. In late October, Richard Reed, the memorial's executive officer for the project, and I set off for France with Rob Allison, a bearer party of six warrant officers first class from the three services, led by Army Major Warren Young, and an Australian Army Honour Guard of some 50 soldiers. In Canberra, arrangements for the 11th of November were in the hands of the Memorial's Deputy Director, Michael McKernan, and his team. The Commission, who deal, the commission would deal with all local arrangements and procedures for the selection and exhumation of the unknown soldier in a simple and straightforward way, not at all like 1920. At midnight on the night of the 7th of November 1920, an hour steeped in myth and ritual, two high-ranking British officers entered a chapel near Arras, and blindfolded, the senior of the two pointed to one of four sacks, covered by Union flags containing the remains of unknown British soldiers from four separate battlefields in France. Together they transferred the remains to a coffin before the chapel altar and carefully screwed down the lid for the return home. In 1993, the Commission selected the graves of four Australian unknowns in Adelaide Cemetery near Villers Bretonne, where Australian divisions halted last German thrust in 1918. Adelaide Cemetery was one of concentration, bringing together remains from smaller surrounding cemeteries and isolated battlefield grave sites. Unlike areas further north where the earth may often be boggy, here at Adelaide Cemetery, the base was limestone and the graves likely to be dry, sound and not too deep. <coughs> at Adelaide Cemetery on the 2nd of November, we opened just one grave. Commission staff exhumed the remains in the presence of Rob Allison, Michael Carroll, Richard Reed, and local gendarmes. The remains were then placed in a handcrafted Tasmanian Blackwood coffin presented to us by the Australian Funeral Directors Association to bring him home. Solemn occasions may still have light moments. At the local gendarmerie, those present found it hard to stop, stop themselves falling about as they watched six raw French national servicemen learn from the ever-patient Rob Allison how to lift, carry, slow march a coffin shoulder high with dignity and no missteps. 
The young servicemen actually did very well. Led by a Breton piper, they carried the coffin up through the graves at Phyllis Breton Military Cemetery to the Australian National Memorial. There, the coffin and its remains were passed to the Australian Bearer Party and the Duke of Kent, President of the War Graves Commission, formally handed the soldier to our ambassador to France. The soldier rested in the memorial tower while we hosted a vendonneur, an acknowledgement to the people of Villers Bretonneur, in whose presence the soldier had lain since 1918. That evening, he was carried by military ambulance to Ypres in Belgium and borne through the streets of the town to the Menengate Memorial, where the names of the 54,000 British Empire missing in Belgium are engraved on its paddles. More than 6,000 are Australian. Local and Australian buglers sounded the last post over the coffin at eight o'clock in the evening. Northern France and Belgium were areas of large-scale Australian losses and strong associations. And the mayors of Ypres and Villers Bretonne were pleased to accept our invitation to return to Australia as our guests for the funeral on the 11th of November. Another acknowledgement of those many connections the AIF had with communities along the old Western Front. Before dawn on the 3rd of November, we made a special visit to the Tyne Cot Cemetery near Ypres with our bugler, bearer party and honour guard. The cemetery in Europe with more Australian burials than any other, 58% unknown. Next day, we took the young Australian service guard to the battlefields and cemeteries of the Somme with a last post at the impressive Teepvale Memorial to the missing of the Somme, the largest Commonwealth memorial to the missing in the world. We had early returned the soldier to the Australian National Memorial at Village Bretonneau, and there he rested until the 5th of November when we drove to the French military air force base at Combray. From the base, he was airlifted by military helicopter to Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris to be returned to Australia by the spirit of remembrance. In Ypres, people had watched quietly as the military coffin-bearing ambulance and escort passed by, heads bowed, hats off. And at Combray, there was a moment when our undertaker, bearer party with coffin, materialised beautifully from a white morning mist into brilliant sunshine and a full-dress military parade. In fact, they'd got lost in the mist for about 10 minutes and they couldn't find their way out. <laughs> the spirit of remembrance arrived in Sydney on the 7th of November and the soldier was transferred directly to Canberra by RAA of Hercules aircraft. Then to King's Hall, Old Parliament House, where he lay in state as Prime Minister John Curtin had 48 years before. He remained there for four days, his coffin draped in the national flag with a slouch hat and bayonet on top. We had national television coverage in France, but little interest had been shown here until after we landed in, in Sydney. From that moment until after the funeral, the story was on the front page of every major Australian newspaper. Hundreds lined up every day to file past and place one or more flowers around the coffin. The idea to lay a single flower caught the public imagination. Flowers from everywhere and the catafalque party stood quietly by as the people of Canberra paid silent tribute to one of our own. On the morning of the 11th of November, the soldier was taken from King's Hall to the lake end of Anzac Parade, where the funeral cortege was assembled to escort the coffin now set on a gun carriage to the gravesite of the Memorials Hall of Memory.
A crowd of 25,000 or more had assembled along the parade and around the memorial's forecourt. Service associations across Australia, about 900 in all, had been invited to participate, and an estimated 600 with their banners made the journey. This collection followed the procession of Anzac Parade and gathered round the parade ground, giving the occasion a further sense that the soldier belonged to the people. Charles Beans once said the AIF was incorrigibly civilian. The media coverage was now extraordinary. ABC was carrying the occasion for all Australian networks and providing links to the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada and France. We were told later that some Australian towns had come to a halt to watch the ceremony at television sales outlets or at home. Service bands with solemn funeral music set the cortege off in slow order. The guns of the Royal and Australian Artillery at one minute intervals fired a Field Marshal's 19-gun salute. A mounted troop, heritage contingent and a tri-service guard, along with the chaplains from the three services, Anglican, Catholic and Presbyterian, led the way. Following them by the gun carriage bearing the soldier, accompanied by eight pallbearers led by Prime Minister Paul Keating and leader of the opposition John Hewson. The chief mourner, Governor-General Bill Hayden, in a similar role to King George V, v in 1920, followed immediately behind the gun carriage, then the state premiers and chief territory chief ministers. A catafalque party was mounted with the soldier's coffin on the stone of remembrance at the entrance to the memorial. The first and likely only time the stone would be used in this way. When the time came, Prime Minister Paul Keating rose from among the ranks of former governors general and prime ministers, members of the judiciary and other dignitaries to deliver the eulogy. It stands as one of the finest speeches ever delivered by an Australian statesman. And in the minds of many ranks with those of Pericles over the Athenian dead and Lincoln at Gettysburg. The bearer party with its precious charge, pallbearers, the governor general and dignitaries then paced their way slowly through the memorial's courtyard and into the hall of memory for the interment. Prayers were read for those of a Christian or similar spirit the dream time, and those of no faith at all. And precisely at 11 o'clock, the coffin was lowered into its final resting place as the service's firing party delivered a three-volley salute from the memorial's courtyard. Governor-General Bill Hayden dropped a sprig of wattle on the coffin as World War I veteran Bob Coombe, military medal, scattered soil we had gathered from the windmill site. A little piece of the old western front actually owned by the Australian War Memorial at Pozieres, where in Charles Bean's words, Australian troops fell more thickly than on any other battlefield of the war. Major Ray Curtis, supporting Bob Coombe, alone heard him whisper, you're home, mate. The tomb remained, me, the tomb remained open for a week and 50,000 or more visited the grave before it was permanently sealed. Historian Ken Inglis wrote that the entombment of the unknown Australian soldier was a national ritual valediction to the old AIF. 
and a climactic event in the making of a place in the nation's capital sacred to the spirit of Anzac. The Hall of Memory had become what Senator George Pierce spoke of in 1925, a silent hall where visitors might sense the presence of the dead. The memorial gained a soul, if you like, with the coming of the soldier and Canberra's commemorative culture changed. It opened up the memorial to acts of personal remembrance and visiting dignitaries would in future enter a space of recognisable sanctity. On that November day for the first time, a young woman managed to wedge a red paper poppy between the panels of the Roll of Honour beside the name of one who died in the Great War. In a week, the cloisters were a sea of red paper poppies and it's been the same ever since. British historian Jay Winter was to intone, on the 11th of November 1993, the Australians broke ranks. We were the first, but in time Canada and New Zealand followed. A last word from Lieutenant, John Gra Lieutenant General John Gray, Chief of the Army. He had an army corporal gathering up horse droppings to avoid embarrassment to any of the dignitaries on the step up Anzac parade. To the soldier he said, Corporal, you're on my Christmas card list this year. The corporal replied, sorry, sir, you're not on mine. <laughs> the centenary of Anzac 2014-18 marks 100 years since Australia's involvement in World War I and the service of later generations of our servicemen and women. To a nationwide travelling exhibition, commemorative activities and a wide range of other programs, the aim has been to improve understanding of our wartime history and start family, school and community conversations to ensure, I quote, an enduring and unifying legacy for current and future generations. The centenary has been built around the stories of the first AIF embodied in the Anzac legend. Drape Anzac over an argument and like a magic cloak, the argument is sacrosanct, observed historian Peter Cochran in the Griffith Review. By day's end, it will have cost $600 million, more than five times the combined commemorative spending of the United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand. One commentator thought it enough to say it would make a sultan swoon. Many have contributed to the centenary at national, state and local levels, public and private, but I shall touch on only a few things that captured my interest. The Australian War Memorial was at the forefront and took a leading role in the successful National Travelling Exhibition Spirit of Anzac Centenary Experience. The Memorial's World War I galleries were redesigned for the beginning of the centenary and continued to enjoy wide popular approval. It has run a range of pro programs during the centenary and I draw particular attention to those highlighting the service of the Indigenous men who managed to join up. Here though, as elsewhere, the stories of the shattered lives of many returned servicemen and women and the consequent pain often inflicted on families still fail to receive the attention they deserve. An exception is Melbourne Museum's small and intense exhibition, Love and Sorrow, described by one reviewer as in a class of its own. The ancient hospital bed that greets you on arrival, bearing the caption, could you spend 43 years in this bed? 
as Albert Ward did, immediately sets the mood for what you are about to encounter. An unexpected and interesting story from the other side of the hill is that of two Jewish brothers from East Prussia, Salo and Maritz de Mant, both of whom served in the German army. Salo died in the German Spring Offensive of 1918. Maritz survived the war, studied to become a doctor, lost his post in 1933 and fled to England. He had two sons and one, David, and his family made their future in Australia and live in Melbourne to this day. The Australian War Memorial in Wellington, Nation, Wellington's National War Memorial Park, was unveiled by Prime Minister Abbott on Anzac Day 2015. The memorial features 15 columns of rugged red sandstone blocks, described by the architects as a landform of Australian red sandstone, symbolic of the red centre. The stone was in truth quarried in India. Veterans Affairs snap answer was that it didn't matter because Australia and India had once been both part of Gondwana land. <laughs> Clark and Dorr. Wellingtonians were not impressed and one Australian commentator declared the memorial forever flawed by this sleight of hand. Also in Wellington, the Kiwis mounted two excellent exhibitions, the Great War at the Dominion Museum and Gallipoli, the scale of our war at the National Museum Te Papa. The eight two and a half life-size figures of actual participants in the Gallipoli campaign are quite overpowering. Both exhibitions are the work of the people who gave us the Lord of the Rings. The $100 million Sir John Monash Centre at Village Bretonner is a lavish, high-tech, sound and light operation aimed at telling Australia's story of the Western Front in the words of those who served. A Prime Minister Abbott's captain's call, it has caused a stir in a number of circles, and some believe it will add little, may even detract from, the experience of a thoughtful exploration of Villas Bretonna and the region. A great friendship exists between Australians and the people of Villas Bretonna, and it would be a shame if something of that were lost to technology and short-stay, pit-stop coach tours. Visitors are likely to miss much of the town and its history, the Victorian School, the excellent Franco-Australian Museum, and that simple message still by a playground wall, do not forget Australia. The Monash Centre opens on Anzac Day. Four years is a long time in the life of any centenary, and this one has had its run. There are commemorative events still to come, and of course, the 100th anniversary of the armistice. But attendance and participation numbers have long been sliding sideways. This, they say, is a consequence of centenary fatigue. Whatever the centenary's legacy, it's still going to be the question of the cost that people remember. I left home in Adelaide in 1959 to make a career in Canberra. I married in St John's Church Reed in 1960, and our two boys grew up and were educated here. Both have made their careers in Canberra. I used regularly to attend Anzac Day services in the 1960s when the significance of the day looked to be fading. My late brother-in-law, Frank McMahon, after service in the RAAF, also made a career move here to Canberra. 
he became a respected and highly awarded Canberra poet. He and his family lived in Ainsley, a stone's throw from the War Memorial. Of the dawn service, he wrote, At this hour, the lists are still invisible. The light from half-extinguished stars drifts down and fades before it's reached the balustrades, and night hides galleries where costs are counted. Day will bring in drums and colours later. Sun will fill this chill, uneasy place between the parapet and panels. Then the names will crowd the colonnades again, but now they're felt, not seen. On this day, before the day begins, the courtyard stirs. Programs open. Torches search for words we read each year and should remember. Lines that guide us back to distant lists again, to obelisks in dusty streets, to all the names we knew and grew with, names that share this space behind us, a place the sky will lighten while our minds are elsewhere, names used briefly and then left to haunt a wall. The poem is of a time when the dawn service could be accommodated in the memorial's courtyard and cloisters, occasions with moments for quiet reflection, catching here and there by torchlight familiar faces among the ranks of veterans. Always, of course, the sulphur-crested cockatoos. Today, a Canberra dawn service draws a congregation of 50,000 or more, and I wonder what possible moments there might be for individual reflection in those numbers. Young people, again in their thousands, many wrapped in the national flag, sit, squat and lie around Anzac Cove, entertained in the dark hours by the BGs and others, waiting for the dawn service. Few there have any idea of what the war was about as they sentimentally chatter about the sacrifices of ancestors of whom the majority know nothing, who once headed off for God, King, country and empire. Dad was an Anzac, Gallipoli to the Somme, and I grew up among and worked with for a time the men who shared his four years of war. My affection and respect for those men and Anzac runs deep. They never felt there was much to celebrate and might have joined those Melbourne veterans who argued in the 1920s against the building of the Melbourne Shrine because they believed it glorified war. As a youngster, Dad would take me to the Anzac Day March in Adelaide. He was never a member of the RSL and he never marched, but he would talk to me of people and battalions and where they had been as they passed by. He would later gather with old friends who'd shake me by the hand and pat me on the back. They'd chat for a while, shake hands again, say their goodbyes and head home until the next time. Fond memories. The centenary of Anzac seems to me a great opportunity lost. To re-examine and look afresh at the Australian experience of war in all its many and varied aspects and a time when we might to begin to settle our military history into the broader framework of the national story. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Brendan Kelson has, has told us that he is happy to hear quest have some questions. So if you would like to have a question, can you raise your hand very clearly so that the two people with the microphones, one on either side, can see you? 
or are you all so spellbound you haven't got there? Marilyn. Uh, so, hang on. One there. And is it on? Is it on? Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you very much, Brendan. Um, as you know, as somebody who once worked at the War Memorial, um, I was very interested in your reflections at the end of your talk. It very much... I can't, I can't quite hear you. You can't hear me? Shall I get up there? Thanks very much, Brendan. A as you know, I did work at the War Memorial um, a while ago. Um, but you said some things at the very end there that very much reflected my thinking in terms of the centenary. And um, perhaps the, the, the sort of sense of glorification with no disrespect to the attempts of memory and respect of all of those that fought, died, or came back, uh, and many, as we know, very troubled. My question is really about how do we go from here in regard to the centenary and how it's, how it's been played out, and uh, how we now think about things or might reflect into the future uh, in another way. Thank, Thank you. Um, the centenary took as its starting point basically the Australian legend, that which was largely produced by um, Charles Bean and has followed through. Um, what has happened is that a lot of the rough edges along the way have been knocked off. Um, and I know that friends of mine and colleagues have spoken of the sorts of things that they were asked to leave out or not discuss in the in relation to the, this centenary. I think it's just a case that there's a pendulum. Anzac Day has always been, on the one hand, solemn, reflective and all those things. On the other hand, there's always been that celebratory sort of sense as well. And if you go back to the, the, uh, the veterans in 1938 parading around Sydney and doing all sorts of things, you know, all these things are passed. I, I just think that uh, the... Um, the, the pendulum swung a little bit too far to the right. And I think that probably over time, um, and with the good writing of many historians and things like that, the pendulum will ultimately swing back towards, sorry, towards the centre. But that's just a thought. Other questions? Over here in the centre, Peter, I think you'll have to wait across there. Thank you, thank you very much for that talk. Uh, it's absolutely riveting. Uh, I was one of the crowd outside. What, how many thousands did you say? Uh, and I remember Mr Keating in his speech outside got quite emotional. I was wondering if you... But, of course, uh, only a small number of people got inside to the Hall of Memory for the burial service. Can you tell us anything more about uh, the atmosphere and what actually happened inside the Hall of Memory? Uh, 
uh, was very emotional. I don't know what else I could ask about that. But your, 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 your actions, what can tell us more about what happened inside the Hall of Memory? Uh, so, sorry, Brian. You're, you're talking about what happened on the day inside the Hall of Memory or something yes. of the atmosphere. Yeah. Yes, there. yes, it, right. exactly it. Uh, I would have to say it was incredibly moving. Um, it was just one of those things that uh, got to all of us. And, uh, I mean, I, I think of one uh, army friend who said uh, uh, afterwards, I was thinking of mates in Vietnam. You make those connections as you do. But I don't think there was anyone there that wasn't incredibly moved by the whole thing. Uh, even in rehearsals, it was touching, wasn't it, Kevin? You'll remember. No, it, it was, it was a, a, quite un, a quite amazing atmosphere. Right. Another question? Right at the back, Peter. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Brendan. Can you hear me all right? Can you uh, hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Right. Belt a bit, old chum. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent talk. Loved it. Uh, I have a, a, a technical question uh, uh, that takes us back to Adelaide Cemetery. Uh, you exhumed a grave, uh, uh, the remains of which had been lying there for probably 80 years. Uh, how could you be sure, absolutely sure, that the remains were of an Australian soldier? Well, we're in the hands of the War Graves Commission. Sorry, we're in the hands of the War Graves Commission in this. But their procedures and the way they identify the things uh, I think I, I would simply take it on record, take, take it that they were absolutely right. There were enough means to, to identify the person as an Australian soldier without being able to identify the person himself. There, there was no question about that. Um, and I, though I've never much said, never, though I've never said this before, it was one of the things that I was fairly insistent upon. I wasn't prepared for us to bring back a collection of bones we would bring back skeletal remains, and, and that we did. Um, but I, I'm in the hands of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission on that. Uh, but all, I think four at least of the Australian divisions, if not the fifth, but at least four were in that area. And uh, it was an area, the grave was recovered from an area where in fact Australians had been, so. I can't offer you anything better than that. Further questions? Any further questions? Thank you. It was just to find out a bit more about the actual process within the War Memorial, about how you managed to cut into the floor of the Hall of Memory. Structurally, that must have given you great difficulty in such a, a space that hadn't been designed for this. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not catching the question. I apologise. He's concerned about what... The difficulties of actually ah. do it, creating the space. Yes, uh, I can't really help. I can't really help you a lot on that one. Uh, I was running around in all sorts of places, and so were others. And uh, Michael McKernan might have a better view on that, but it was largely in the hands of the architects and the contractors that were doing it. They were given the specifications. They planned the whole thing. Can you shed any light, Michael?
Thank you. The first thing that had to be done was, of course, remove the Ray Ewer statue. That's right. And you uh, went to see Ray personally and explained to him that the statue was being moved and that was done. And then we had a design competition for the creation of the, um, the space. And it was a selected uh, competition and only, I think, the successful uh, uh, competitors put the grave in the ground. And almost every other design idea had the grave standing above ground. And it was decided by yourself and members of council that it would be so much more appropriate that, uh, that it be in ground. And that gave um, Richard Llewellyn, who was your delegate in that matter, an enormous headache. Um, because directly below the Hall of Memory is one of the memorial's galleries. Um, in fact, the, uh, the um, VC Corner uh, exhibition. And the tomb rests between the floor of the Hall of Memory and the roof of the exhibition gallery. But to ensure that the, uh, there was no structural damage, a quite uh, heavy amount of steel work went into supporting the tomb. But the decision to put the tomb in the ground, I think, was the key decision in the whole design process. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take one more question. If we have any. Right. Thank you very much for everyone, for your attendance. Brendan, thank you so much for a wonderful address. Most of us would have been aware of the idea, the concept behind a Lanzone soldier, but many of us, including me, would not really have known of the events leading up to the original unknown soldier burial in the UK. Fewer, I suspect, still would have been aware of the huge amount of planning and preparation that you had to do for this event. And to hear about it firsthand with someone and someone else with key knowledge as of this is a really wonderful experience for all of us and a rare privilege. From a personal perspective, this has been a journey back in time. My own father, who died when I was 18 months old, was a World War I veteran. He never missed an Anzac Day in Melbourne. I do know that um, Anzac Day for, him, for us was for him. On a more recent note, I was actually out in the audience with a delegation from Delopia Park School, which included primary children and secondary children, while we watched the processions and the events. My memory is that I rewarded these little people with an ice cream each for being so well behaved. <laughs> for them and me, it was a great event. Your reflections on the nature of commemoration and remembrance after the centenary celebrations for the First World War have given us all something very important to think about and to consider, particularly in this age of modern media. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to hear this talk and the Canberra District Historical Society would like to present you with something we hope will be of use for you. Thank you. <laughs> Another round of applause for our speaker. I'm concluding a little early, so some people will actually have time to come and talk to Dr. Mr. Colson. 
To conclude the Canberra Day Oration, there are many people and organisations to thank. Nick has already thanked the National Library and its wonderful staff. I would like to reinforce that thanks. It, it's a very great privilege for us to be able to host this event every year in this great venue. Events like this don't happen without a lot of planning and preparation. Thank you. Uh, thanks are due to Nick Swain, our president, and our council. Unfortunately, the very person who was most instrumental in bringing this talk to you, Dr. Richard Reed, got his planning a little wrong, and he's double booked. He's actually talking in Sydney at a conference. So I'm saying thank you, Richard. I hope this message gets to you through the ether. Finally, I would like to thank each and every one of you for turning out today and coming. Support for organisations like the National Library, the War Memorial and local historical societies is vital that if we are to keep our, our knowledge of our past and ourselves. Um, in this current climate, it seems that history and heritage has become a very low priority for many people and many levels of government including, and there are cutbacks on funding, particularly for local historical societies and peak organisations. Please consider joining an organisation, including ours, the Canberra District Historical Society. There's some brochures out there. And while you think about all of that, please have a safe journey home. Thank you for coming.